the amazing way uh, it is put together, its design, its composition. And I think back to a, a time years ago uh, when I was a much younger man and uh, driving a car in Victoria and Philip Adams, uh, the journalist, was on the radio and he said, the New Testament, what a mess, it's a dog's breakfast. Well, I almost ran off the road and uh, I wanted to speak to him and, uh, uh, and reach for my loose change and find a phone booth because there was no mobiles back then and uh, I didn't. Um, but I would have loved to have said to him uh, what a, a tragic misunderstanding that was and uh, even a, a willful ignorance because you only have to read God's word and uh, it testifies to itself uh, of its order and even of its inspiration. Well, there are things in life that are a mess, and uh, that can include us. Uh, perhaps you sense something of that this morning. Uh, my daughter and I sensed it at the Toowoomba show yesterday. It was a mess uh, in the rain and in the mud. Uh, I ended up in the uh, shelter talking to David Janetsky, a local politician, and we got talking about the mess of the British Parliament uh, over the whole Brexit situation, if you're following that. Uh, what a mess uh, they are in. And uh, they perhaps need to re-watch some old episodes of a show that was on, uh, maybe before some of you were born, uh, called Keeping Up Appearances. Have you ever come across that? Uh, some, some nods. Uh, an actress named Patricia Rutledge uh, played uh, a character called uh, Hyacinth Bucket, I mean uh, Bouquet, uh, Hyacinth Bouquet. And uh, in one episode, she handed the postman a letter and he noticed that it was addressed uh, to her neighbour right next door. And he naturally asked, uh, why don't you just walk over and put it in her letterbox? And Hyacinth replies, because I like people to know that I use first-class postage stamps. <laughs> Hyacinth was also known to tell people that she had a sister named Violet. She's the one with the Mercedes, the swimming pool, and room for a pony. Hyacinth found that her greatest struggle in life was with people who try to pretend they're superior because they make it so much harder for those of us who really are. That was her dilemma. Well, one of the biggest questions we ever face is how do we measure importance? How do we order tasks? How do we value things? How do we prioritise people? How do we identify what's really important, even in what is often the mess of our lives. One of the biggest fears in life is that we don't matter, that we have little or no significance in the minds and hearts of others. And that can be crushing when we are negated or overlooked, taken for granted or even disdained. Am I important? Do I matter? How important should I be? Well, that is the question of two fellows, two apostles, no less, in today's uh, passage in Mark 10. Their names are James and John. 
And if you've read the gospel, you've met them before, you meet them all the way back in chapter 1 when Jesus called the four fishermen, two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And of these, Andrew seemed to join more of the rank and file of the apostles, of that band of disciples as it grew. But Peter, James and John, they formed something of the inner circle, the cabinet. They were with Jesus at the stunning and dramatic event of the transfiguration. Peter appeared to be the chief apostle. He was the first to confess his faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the gospel truth that was the foundation of the church. But here and now in chapter 10, as these fellows are are walking to Jerusalem, they are spread out along the road, making their way in small groups of conversation, and now James and John make their move. They are going to try and sideline Peter and get the top two positions in Jesus' coming kingdom. Now, when we consider that Peter was Mark's primary source in writing the accounts in this gospel, that's mainly where Mark seems to have got his information, it's obvious that Peter didn't hear this conversation between James and John and Jesus firsthand, initially, directly. He comes in a bit later, but... Uh, He was far enough away, back over the hill, not yet around the corner, talking to others around the last bend. And yet in Matthew's account, in his gospel, we get the view of someone who was closer to this discussion. He tells us how he saw James and John's mother there with them. We understand that her name was Salome. I'm tempted to think her middle name was Hyacinth. (laughs) Matthew describes how she ran up and knelt down before Jesus and initiated a request for the promotion of her sons. And it is clear that James and John weren't embarrassed by this. Oh, mum, please. They were in on it. And that's what Mark reports for us here in our passage in, in chapter 10 from verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you, just like mum asked. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. We want to be really important. Alice Roosevelt Longworth said of her late father, the president, he wanted to be the baby at every christening, the bride at every wedding, and the corpse at every funeral. (laughs) James and John are aiming a little higher than that in their social and religious circles. But where did they get the idea that things were going so well that Jesus' mission was the star to which they should hitch their wagon. To answer this, we need to back up to the discussion that has just taken place a little earlier on this journey in verses 32 to 34. And if you've read through the Gospel of Mark, you'll have noted that these are familiar words. This is the third time that Jesus has mapped out his impending trial, his 
wrongful conviction, his execution and his resurrection. The first occasion is in chapter 8, the second in chapter 9, and the third here in chapter 10. And so if you ever want to uh, recall those three occasions when Jesus maps out uh, his part of the cross and through the empty tomb, we find them in chapters 8, 9 and 10 of Mark's Gospel. So key. And yet the disciples' eyes glazed over when they heard Jesus talk this way. They didn't want to see uh, what he was talking about. They didn't get the point. Maybe it was like a worst-case scenario that Jesus wanted them to be ready for if it came to that. Uh, just letting you know, fellas, that if it all goes south, this is plan B. And yet in each of these three cases, when Jesus has given this prophecy, he has referred to himself by the particular title of the Son of Man. He does that every time in chapter 8, chapter 9, and here in chapter 10. And as we know, I hope we know, whenever the disciples or the Jews heard that expression, the Son of Man, their minds went, ah, Daniel chapter 7. We know where that comes from. And I hope we can remember that too. Because that's the whole point of Jesus speaking of himself in these terms. So that we recognise his claim to be the Son of Man, the Divine Man of Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14. Where the prophet says there, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all nations or peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus claims this identity and this destiny. And James and John are saying, well, we'll have some of that. <laughs> Whatever else you're talking about, we're interested in that. We'll get in on that action. What a career opportunity. You've got to rule the world? Uh, we'll help you. Now, they are still thinking that this is all going to involve some kind of national revolution, a takeover of the seat of power in the capital, uh, the re-establishment of David's kingdom and throne in Jerusalem, and even the expulsion of their Roman overlords. And in their minds, when that day comes, when the carpenter from Nazareth sits on David's throne, he'll have a, a fisherman from Galilee on either side. Won't that be something? Great twist for the movie when it comes out. And yet Jesus is focused on this path of suffering. Which he does not see as a kind of tragic ending if things don't work out. No, rather, for Jesus, this is the main plan. It is the plan for the Son of Man. On the first occasion, when Jesus gives this speech about his forthcoming death and resurrection and his initial, initial presentation of it in chapter 8, Jesus uses the word must. This must happen. 
Not that it might happen, but that it must happen. And when he repeats himself in chapters 9 and 10, he speaks in the passive voice, these things will happen to him uh, and he won't resist them. Uh, He will undergo it willingly. But in the first and foundational explanation, he speaks in terms of what must take place. Chapter 8 and verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This word must has the idea of absolute necessity. There is something unavoidable, even inescapable, about this. And if we're going to understand this idea of must, then we have to trace it all the way back into the very heart, into the very nature, into the very character of the living God. What was necessary, what was essential when Almighty God decreed that he would bring the universe into being? Was it only that his creative power, that his incorruptible holiness, that his perfect justice be revealed? No, it was that his heart of grace and compassion and self-giving must also be displayed. If God was to give life to people, then he must, in Christ, die for sinners. There is something in the very character and nature of God that this is the way things must be if we are to truly know him. You see, redemption even was never plan B. It was never merely a backup scheme in case uh, of things going wrong. No, it was always the plan that the steadfast love and the endless mercy and the amazing grace of the Lord would be revealed in real events with real people on the real stage of history. Now we can ask, how how, how does that work? How does God decree redemption as central to his creation? Didn't he make everything perfect, and then just sit back with his fingers crossed, hoping Adam and Eve would cooperate? Wasn't salvation a kind of ring-in rescue strategy? Well, not according to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul tells us there that God the Father, from verse 4, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In his plan of redemption, According to the purpose of his will, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. That's the kind of universe that God was to bring into being, one in which his grace would be lavished in Jesus. There are great mysteries here that are beyond the scope of today's passage and our time and perhaps all the time we could ever have in this world. But know this, that the Christ must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed and after three days rise again. This has got to happen. Otherwise God is not God and there's nothing at all. This, my friends, is really important.
And if we are to know why we are important, then we must be located in the importance of Jesus and in the importance of who he is and in the importance of what he does. We can spend so much of our lives yearning for importance in our own eyes and in the estimation of others and dragging people down in order to think better of ourselves. That's Monday morning, isn't it? (laughs) How can I critique another in order to try and flatter myself? To make ourselves look superior by comparison. And yet there is only one thing that really makes us important. And Paul sums that up in Galatians 2.20. He says that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Friend, you can't be more important than that. To be loved of God and for the Son of God to give himself for you. But here, dear James and John, are wanting some prestige, some power, some position. And Jesus replies so directly in our passage. We're back in Mark 10 and verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptised with the baptism with which I am baptised? Is that a cryptic answer? No, not at all. The words cup and baptism that Jesus uses here stand for the idea of a covenant uh, or of an agreement, just as they do for us in baptism and the Lord's Supper. The covenant is God's decree, his terms of relationship, What, James and John, uh, are you going to be co-redeemers with me? Can you fill those terms of God's covenant? Is that what you're asking? You're coming to the cross, are you? You're going to rise again. Can, Can you pay for sins, James and John? Can you fulfill the terms of God's covenant? Can you not only share in the symbols, but secure the reality of what baptism and the cup represent. Friends, James, John, you don't know what you're talking about, but they answer and they said to him, yeah, we're able. (laughs) And they were partly correct. Can sinners share in a relationship with God? Can they have a part in that covenant? Can they be reconciled to him? Of course, yes, they can, but they can't provide it. They can only receive it. And so Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism which I, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Yes, you will share in this, but not as the savior, rather as the delivered, not as the shepherd, but as the sheep. Not as the forgiver, but as the pardoned. Not as the sacrifice, but as those atoned for. Not as the redeemer, but as the restored. Not as the blood offering, but as the cleansed. And then Jesus continues. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. 
It's the Father who honours the Son of Man with his throne when he ascends to glory in Daniel 7. And it's the Father's role to bestow other honours as well. And something that is clear throughout the the, uh, New Testament is that even though salvation is salvation and heaven is heaven and eternal life is eternal life, there are measures of rewards for the service of God's people. And we shouldn't think that it will be measured by our estimation of things. It could be that when we stand before the throne and all the ways in which God's grace was revealed in the lives of his people is displayed, that someone will say, well, there's lots of honours being handed out. Lots of crowns being given and returned to Jesus' feet. But who is that sitting on Jesus' right hand and on his left up there? Maybe someone will joke. They'll nudge the person next to them and say, well, is it is it James and John? <laughs> or perhaps someone will say, I don't even have to look. I can tell you, it's John Calvin and Martin Luther. Or maybe a Baptist, I don't know. Um, and yet, friends, the answer could well be along these lines. Well, that, that one on the right is some poor fellow, uh, never known outside his village. He had a wayward youth, broke his parents' hearts. But there was a day when he was transformed by the gospel and he loved and served the Lord as a husband and as a father. He delighted in worship at his local church and in encouraging God's people. He used his gift that way. He prayed for and gave to everyone he could. And when he faced loss and tragedy and unspeakable pain and even disillusionment, he found Christ to be sufficient for his need. He was a truly humble and faithful servant of his Saviour. That's him on the right. And as for that one on the left, apparently she was a woman who never married, uh, but she cared for children, foster children. She held them through their fears and traumas and prayed for them and told them of Christ's love. There are only three people at her funeral. She had become a Christian herself when she learned of Jesus in Sunday school and she always wanted to tell other children because of that. She's on the left. I'd say it'll be something like that. Because that's the implication of Jesus' punchline that's coming here. From verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they've caught up now, watch out, they began to be indignant at James and John. What's going on here? (laughs) And they're annoyed. They're puffing out their chests and putting in and pushing in. And Jesus calls them all to him and said to them, verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Here's... That word must again. 
Here is something essential, something really important. You see, it is when we recognize that Jesus has come from the highest place to take the lowest place for us that we see profound purpose and dignity and value in the lowest place. And we want to take it too. Not as the forgiver, but as the pardoned. Not as the sacrifice, but as those atoned for. Not as the redeemer, but as the restored. Not as lords, but as servants. You see, my friend, it is what happens in the 167 hours or so we spend outside of church each week that reveals whether or not we have understood what's being said and celebrated during the hour or so inside church. And I'd be no friend to you at all and I would fail as a gospel preacher if I didn't tell you that if you are not concerned to be the servant of your brothers and sisters in Christ here in this congregation and to be Christ's servant in your home and in your community, not merely as a do-gooder, but as a life-giving witness and testimony to him. If this is not your concern, to do this as you are enabled by the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, then you have not yet understood or benefited from Christ's concern for you. If your goals in life are merely to climb the ranks of your profession and accumulate all the recognition and acclamation you can, not as the unavoidable side effect of using your God-given talents well for his glory, we ought to be doing that, but if you seek these things as an end in themselves, if you have a hunger, a drive for that, then watch out. I must have that job. I must have that promotion. I must have that house, that thing, that relationship, that person, that experience. I must do it Sinatra's way, my way, live on my terms. Then wake up and watch out. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They seek position and their great ones exercise authority over them to get ahead of the next guy. But it shall not be so among you. It cannot be so. You should not want it to be so. Indeed, there is nothing worse, nothing more antithetical to the gospel. Oscar Wilde said, there are two and only two tragedies in life. One is not getting what we want and the other is getting it when we live on our terms. That's the futility of scrambling up and slipping down the ladder. You lose at both ends when they are ends in themselves. And Jesus sweeps that ladder away. (laughs) But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. What kind of lifestyle is that? Slavery. No. This isn't about compulsion. It's about a willing bond. It's a new heart, a new desire. We are constrained by the love of Christ to love him 
and serve him and others. Andrew Murray, in his book, Humility, the Beauty of Holiness, writes that humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. It's not a loss, it's a gain. Christ humbled himself, therefore God exalted him. Let us therefore heartily consent, let us trustfully accept all that humbles us. What's humbled you in this past week? Some embarrassment, some difficulty, some disaster. Let us trustfully accept all that humbles us so that the power of Christ will rest upon us, says Murray. We shall find that the deepest humility is the secret of the truest happiness. Didn't feel like it when it was happening, did it? (laughs) When you were being brought low, that you were entering into a deeper and truer happiness of a joy, says Murray, that nothing can destroy. That's what God intends. That's the experience of the servant of Jesus. And let's be absolutely clear as we think through this. We don't serve in order to be saved. We contribute nothing to that. Rather, we serve as the fruit, as the inevitable result of being saved, of being saved by the service of another. That's what humbles us and transforms us and renews us. And here comes the very explanation Jesus looks all of his disciples and each one of us here in the eye and he says in verse 45, for even the Son of Man, even the Lord of glory, that one who came from and is destined to return to heaven's throne in victory and in triumph, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The cross comes before the crown. Without the cross, there is no crown. Without a ransom, there is no payment. Without my death, says Jesus, there is no life for many. Do you know yourself to be one of that many today? Abandon your idols. Deny yourself. Cast yourself upon his mercy, and he will raise you up to the heights of his kingdom where all his people will reign with him forever. Recognize who Jesus is and what he has done as you meet him this moment in the good news that he has brought even now this morning to you. It's really important. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our loving God, how we thank you that we have been included by your word, by your spirit today on this journey to Jerusalem. And Lord, we thank you that we have heard, we have learnt, and we have seen this Jesus. And oh Lord, we thank you that we have heard him say where he's going and why he's going there. He's going to the cross 
Uh, he's going to die. He's going to rise again. And why? To give his life as a ransom for many. O oh Lord, may we know that this is for us. May we know that he dies for our sins. May we entrust ourselves to him as our Lord and Saviour. And may we know what is really important today and forevermore. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.